The Practical Islamic Finance Podcast is provided for general information purposes only. It does not constitute personalized investment advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first doing their own due diligence. There are risks associated with investing, including loss of principal. Invest at your own risk. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the first episode of the Practical Islamic Finance Podcast. I am your host, Rakan Kayali, and with me is my good friend, Bader who is a expert in the field of Islamic finance. He'll tell you a bit about himself in a second. Let me tell you a bit about myself, if you're unfamiliar. I have degrees in computer science and engineering and finance from The Ohio State University. I graduated with distinction in finance in 2012. I was the only student in my graduating class to graduate with distinction in finance because of research I did on the viability of Islamic finance as a substitute for interest-based banking. I'm very passionate about the topic of Islamic finance and halal investing in general. For that reason, I started practicalislamicfinance.com, the blog, in 2015. And towards the end of 2015, I started dabbling a bit with video and started Practical Islamic Finance, the YouTube channel. Since that time, I've started a couple of businesses in the Islamic finance space, including fundmebff.com, which provides halal consumer financing for Muslims in the United States. And with me is Bedr, who will give you a bit about his background. Yeah, so thank you, Rakan, for your introduction. So yes, my name is Ahmed Badrin. Uh, my friends call me Bedr, and that's why Rakan is yeah calling me Bedr throughout the introduction and through our discussion. I am personally holding a doctorate in finance and banking from Marburg University in Germany, and I am an IOFI certified Sharia advisor and auditor. I also hold uh, a master's degree in economics of the Middle East, which is a bit uh, yeah, more open than just finance, a bit more uh, macro level. Uh, but that is basically my background. And of course, my interest, in, my interest in Islamic finance comes through my degree, but also my background and some of my experience in the region. Thank you for that. The purpose of this podcast, what we're going to aim to do is just talk about recent financial news discuss it from the perspectives of two people who fancy themselves as somewhat informed in the field of uh, Islamic finance and halal investing. The topics that we wanted to discuss in this week's episode are first Robinhood's IPO and its subsequent transformation into a meme stock that has in about one week since its IPO doubled in price and then we're going to talk about the cryptocurrency market in general, some considerations when we're trying to ascertain whether a certain cryptocurrency is halal or haram, and just how cryptocurrency investing compares with stock investing and some of our thoughts on that. So starting with the Robinhood IPO, for those who are unfamiliar, Robinhood is most well known for its trading app. And that trading app had pioneered the concept of free trading and $0 minimums. Uh, previously, you had to pay 5 to $10 per trade. You had to have at least $500 minimum balance in your trading account or in your investment account to get started with investing. But Robinhood took all that away. And because of Robinhood, to their credit, the industry in general has adapted to this and basically it's become the industry standard that there's no trading fees there's no minimums 
And this has made investing more accessible to a larger number of people. And this is important because the stock market in particular has been the largest wealth creator for the average person in the last 100 years. So that's to their credit. However, there are a number of things that Robinhood gets involved with that are not necessarily halal. Obviously, you have cash management accounts that Robinhood provides, which offer interest. You have revenue that it collects from options trading. You have the payment from order flow model that Robinhood is built on, which basically charges traders, even though explicitly there are no fees. But on the back end, Robinhood gets some money from every trade by taking the difference in price between buyer and seller, taking a portion of that. And this is known in the industry as payment for order flow. So this means that Robinhood benefits the more active its customers are in terms of trading. The more trades they put in, the more order flow it has, and the more payment from order flow it can collect. This puts Robinhood at odds with the well-being of its customers because most studies in the space have concluded that excessive trading is associated with lower returns. And therefore, if Robinhood is incentivized to cause its customers to trade more and its customers' well-being is best served by them not trading that frequently, then the well-being of Robinhood and its customers are somewhat at odds. And I believe that a business model wherein the business owners and the customers have conflicting well-beings is fundamentally an un-Islamic business model that I wouldn't feel comfortable investing in. So in addition to the revenue, which is pretty clear-cut in terms of the involvement in a material way of haram sources, the overall business model of Robinhood makes me uncomfortable, and therefore we've deemed it on practical Islamic finance to be uncomfortable to invest in from a halal perspective. Anything you'd want to add to that, Better? Yeah, so maybe uh, my comments about that. So I agree that, um, yeah, I think that is actually their official goal, their official, yeah, on their website, when you read about it, they tell you that we want people to be able to access the market, people who are usually, uh, yeah, excluded from the market, people who are no, or before the uh, transaction costs really got a lot lower, they were unable to access that market and access the wealth creation. So that is their official, let's say, slogan or motto, their official mission. However, what you mentioned is very uh, important, and that is way more important now after the IPO, which is that their business model is now not in the same way. There is a conflict of interest between the wealth creation for their customers, which usually comes from long-term investment, uh, i.e. not so frequent trading, buying and selling, day trading, and the stockholders or the owners. So now the stockholders will tend to pressure as any Wall Street investors tend to do. They want higher revenues, higher dividends, higher profits. They want the business to expand every quarter more than it was last time. And in the case of Robinhood, that means more trading volume. And that might not really be of service to the customers themselves. I mean, we already see how Robinhood is doing that. They expand their investment universe. So at first, I think it was just stocks. And then they went into the derivatives and then they uh, added crypto into it. So moving in that direction is all to expand your investment universe. On a theory side, I have to mention a theoretical finance person will tell you, well, more trading is always a good thing. More trading means you reach the 
correct, and I'm using correct now in quotation marks, the correct or the fair price of a stock or an asset, that is actually a good thing for the overall market. But I think we can agree that a lot of people do not trade based on what they think is the fair value of a stock, but rather on the expectation, whether it will go up or down in order to make a, a profit. And that is, of course, a different thing. Yeah, so these are maybe my two cents on the issue. Uh, the IPO that they had. Yeah, and I'd really be interested in what is the data that Robinhood has about what percentage of their customers are actually net winners versus net losers, right? Like I, I would, I would re- really be interested in the average return of the Robinhood customer, but I, I suspect they wouldn't release that information. I'd assume that they will publish maybe some of that in a very well marketed manner. So they tell you, well, do you know that at least 5% of our customers uh, achieved (laughs) an average of, I don't know how many thousand dollars profit, but they don't tell you how the rest of the people did. Yeah. Uh, And so I remember, I think one of the very famous, I don't want to mention names, but one of the very famous, what's that called? Virtual soccer league provider things that that are always around in the US. And and they, yeah, it's sort of like gambling, but they always tell you that uh, people who play the soccer, the virtual soccer thing on our platform, on average, tended to make $800. But then when you read in some other investigations from journalists, they tell you, well, the rest of the people lost uh, over $3,000 on average. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Without seeing the raw data, it would be hard to take any you know conclusions that come out of Robinhood with a high degree of confidence. But but I also have to say, uh, so let's take, let's move slightly one step away from Robinhood per se and just the business sure. model. It has brought down the transaction costs in the industry in general. It has brought out similar companies, similar business models in Europe, uh, in the UK. And, and that has generally helped access not only in the US. So Robinhood is mainly active in the US, but it has made a big, big transition all over the world for stock markets. So. I have to give them that. Maybe that wasn't their their goal for the entire world, but they have done that and they've brought down transaction costs everywhere. So I think in Germany, where I am, we, we don't have a case, we don't have a business model where you have no transaction costs, but we certainly have things that have gotten very, very low weren't there before. So, so there's no things. there's no broker online broker in Germany that provides uh, zero dollar trades. No, not not to my knowledge. So there are some interesting things that weren't there before. So I think like a five euro fee per month, and then you trade. So that's like a flat fee that you pay, and then you trade whatever you want, oh. or maybe something like a one euro per trade fee, which is still much much better. I know that at a time, so a few years ago, before the entire Robinhood thing, the lowest transaction cost was around twenty five euros per trade, which is significantly higher than what you're talking about right now. And of course, we have to remember, so we are talking about the retail investors. So I'm sure the the big companies were able to access much, much better deals, much, much better transaction costs. So I don't know how uh, an investment bank would be trading, but probably a rate than than, uh, me and you would at the time. But now with something like Robinhood, things do look much better or this business model in general. But again, the the entire thing that we're talking about here is not the business model itself, but how does an IPO of that company affect what's going on? So the other ones that are being traded around here, I'm not sure that they've been IPO'd. And when they are, how how will things turn out? And and speaking of which, this kind of leads us to the price of Robinhood, what it has done since it IPO'd. So 
me uh, pull it up here. It started trading at around $35. And then it reached as high as $70 on August 4th. And now it's back down to uh, $55. So not the type of gains that we saw in, let's say, a GameStop. But still, you know, you're talking about at the peak, 100% gain from its IPO price, which I'm assuming is not based on the fundamentals. There's no piece of there's no piece of new news that came out about Robinhood that no. caused people to double their valuation for the company. No, no, so, that, that is that is definitely true. So uh, yeah. such volatility is never based on fundamentals or based on news that you you actually find or something that the company actually did or performed. Actually, people were quite surprised at the beginning that the stock didn't shoot up. So I think it stayed like one or two days around the 35 mark. And then suddenly it had this big shift up to the 70s and stayed there for a few days that people thought, okay, maybe that is the fair price. And then it jumped or it yeah, dropped down to the 50s. And, and so I would say a lot of volatility right after an IPO is something you can expect. That is not something unheard of sure. uh, because people are trying to get a feel for where the correct price should be. But then again, we have to factor in, this is not based on the fundamentals. This is the supply and demand of the stock. This is the yeah. expectation. And, and if people find 50s are okay, then that is fine. But I mean, I think we had a discussion a week ago, maybe when the IPO was coming out, me and you personally, and we talked about, it's pretty surprising that it's sticking around the 30s. We, we would have expected something different. And then a few days later, that's exactly what happened. It shot up and, and now we see that drop down again. And I can't really say why it dropped down. The funny thing that you'll always find in all of the very informed financial news is that they always tell you after the event, well, that must have happened. That was pretty obvious for everyone, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they never tell you that right before it. So yeah, they speak with 100% clarity about the past. Exactly. <laughs> they always tell you, well, that was obvious. People yeah. will cash out after the stock goes up 100%. And, and you can immediately get them another example where a stock went up 100%, people did not cash out. And right. so, yeah. Yeah. And, and why did they cash out at 100% and not at 75%, right? Exactly. Hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. Exactly. Yes, that is true. So speaking of Robinhood and the uh, crazy volatility that it's had, the cryptocurrencies are uh, back on the rise after the bull market, I guess, either went into a bear market or went into a bull market nap, however you want to look at it. But basically across the board, cryptos are up, especially in the spotlight in the last week was Ethereum uh, because of the long-awaited update to Ethereum, which theoretically should bring the transaction costs down for Ethereum. It's going to bring down the revenue that miners of Ethereum actually generate by almost 50%, but it should make the entire platform a lot more usable for users. In addition to that, it caused the supply of Ethereum to be reduced because there was, during this process, a burning of a large number of Ethereum tokens. So the supply has been reduced. And therefore, based on laws of supply and demand, the price has shot up quite significantly. One of the really big, strong points of Bitcoin is how simple its monetary policy is. And I would say the same about some other cryptocurrencies like Dogecoin. It's 5 billion more tokens every year. It's very simple to understand. 
with the Bitcoin. It's 21 million tokens, and that's a hard cap. With Ethereum, it's very hard to say succinctly what the monetary policy is. It's also a concern to many, including myself, that this monetary policy has not been immutable in its past. It's changed before. One of the claims to fame for Bitcoin is that its monetary policy is basically immutable. Um, It has never changed, but that's not the case with Ethereum. I wanted to bring that up just for the people that hear about Ethereum. It's going up in price. I want them to understand the risks. I think there is a lot of merit to Ethereum. And in fact, people who have followed my portfolio moves know that I've invested in Ethereum since March of this year. And I actually mentioned it in one of my videos that I invested in Ethereum. But it's important to keep things in perspective, not get overly hyped up about something. I think that there is a lot of potential for Ethereum, just like I think there's a lot of potential for the cryptocurrency space in general. I just want to make sure that people are not betting the betting the farm or house or whatever analogy you want to use. Yeah, so maybe a note here. One thing that I always find, so I don't know what your current opinion is generally about crypto and comfort, so halal comfort. But yeah. what I do want to say is that the the fatwas that we hear a lot um, have a small problem, in my opinion, is that they really generalize. So you hear yeah. them issuing a fatwa about cryptos in general. So whether cryptos are halal or whether cryptos are haram, but they never they never differentiate. So Ethereum is significantly different than Bitcoin, maybe different than other types. And therefore, you really need to wonder a bit whether the FedWays should be going a bit more into detail, really understanding how these things are working, whether there is really a value behind them or not. All of these things matter. Sure, one thing that I've heard a lot in the FedWays is some of them say, well, if these coins are very problematic in terms of their ability to hide crime or to commit crime, then that should also be factored into their the decision, the scholarly decision, whether they are permissible or not. These are, There are a lot of different factors in what can take into consideration. Some people say, well, this is also the case with money. You don't factor that into money or you don't say, well, cash is also uh, possible to commit crime with. Why don't you include that into your factoring of whether cash is Uh, halal or not. So there is a lot of debate about cryptos, but what I'm just highlighting is that maybe a fatwa that is applicable to Bitcoin would not be applicable to a crypto. Absolutely. And uh, we've discussed this before, Badr, but it wasn't wasn't shared with the audience. I'd like to hear your uh, opinion about, or your response to people who say that, well, the cryptocurrencies are not controlled by the state and They claim, without any evidence that I've seen, that the issuance of money should be a monopoly of the state in Islam. So what's your response to that argument? Yeah, so we can argue, well, uh, there are some historical, uh, maybe archaeological things that people in Indonesian islands or somewhere over there used shells. Would that be haram if we were living at the time there and using shells as cash? And I would argue not at all. If that is the agreed of what we would call orf, uh, so the tradition, how people agree to it, then that is not per se a problem. And then based on that, we can discuss, well, should that be a monopoly of the state or not? And to those people, I would say, I'm not sure what you're arguing or whether that argument applies on cryptos because cash is currently not being issued by the state. Cash is issued by the central banks. And central banks are very famously following the Bretton Woods Accords, etc. They are 
independent. They are not part of the state. Maybe they are public uh, sector related, but they are independent of the government. In theory, in good economics, the government order the central bank to issue money. And that is, of course, something good because that controls inflation. That ensures that no government can say, well, uh, we're really strapped for cash. Can you just print us a couple of million or billion? That is not allowed. So if you're arguing or if a person is arguing cryptos are not okay because cash should be issued by the state, well, that argument would apply to cash as well. And that means it wouldn't, you wouldn't be allowed to use cash. If you're arguing that that is something that Islam says, I don't agree that Islam says that, or I don't see that Islam says that anyway, and therefore cash is fine. And cryptos on that argument would not be a problem. They might be problematic for other reasons, but not based on that uh, yeah, I agree with the notion that, you know, when there isn't a very explicit or implicit hadith or ayah that addresses a certain issue, then the cost-benefit analysis needs to be made to see whether this is something that Islam approves of or prohibits. I, I, I think I can say with... Um, a high degree of confidence that anything wherein the the nefa, if calculated correctly, and that's the big if, that's where the analysis comes in. If calculated correctly, and it turns out that nefa is bigger than the harm, the benefit is greater than the harm, then I think that that is something that Islam would support. Again, I'm assuming here that there's no ayah or hadith that explicitly addresses the topic at hand. When there is an ayah or hadith that specifically addresses the topic at hand. The cost-benefit analysis has already been done for us. So we already know what's, here, so what's better. Yeah, we have to also take care that some people take implicit signals from some hadiths that really focus on gold and silver or money. Mm -hmm. and, and then you see that uh, coming up a lot when we talk about the fatwas that have to do with certain Islamic contracts. And they tell you, well, you can use this contract, something like Salem, which is a forward sale contract. And they tell you, you can use that for anything you want, but not gold or silver, because these are seen as money right. from an Islamic perspective. Right, right, and right. what you see is that this created a huge loophole for people to use Salem with completely different things like platinum or copper or any other commodity <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that due to the liquidity, the high liquidity that you have in the markets right now is as good as money. Right. But because the certain scholars see only gold and silver as the correct money from an Islamic perspective, you're opening a very big loophole here. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, that's that, that highlights the importance of understanding what the alli of the hukum is. You have to understand the reasoning and not just memorize the verdict in order to be able to navigate intelligently the contemporary issues. I appreciate that perspective, but there, let's talk about investing in crypto versus investing in stocks. Now, it seems a lot more, you know, attractive nowadays to put some money in crypto because of the enormous returns in a very short period of time that a lot of these cryptocurrencies are achieving for their holders. For example, Dogecoin yesterday was up, I think, like 25% in one day in 24 hours. And from what we know of, you know, human behavior, that's something that's very pleasurable. Sure, it also makes a big pressure on people who are not in it. So that's true. Uh, the the fear of missing out on it. So if you're one of the people who are convinced, I don't want to invest in crypto, they're too volatile. But then you hear something like, uh, yeah. well, these people just made 25% on their investment. 
there is a very big pressure on you. There's a sense of regret. Well, maybe I should have just put some money in there. Yeah. I would have been 25% uh, richer today. Um, <laughs> that is a very real uh, problem. That is a very real pressure that needs a yeah. lot of discipline. If you are one a person who is convinced not to enter that market, uh, then you really should stay away from these. Yeah, this news that might really change your mind uh, and make you go into something that you might not be convinced of doing. Yeah, and what I would like to say is a very simple idea that some people sometimes lose sight of is that you cannot lose money that you don't have invested, right? True. If you had your money in some other asset or cash and Dogecoin went up 25% in one day, uh, you did not lose 25%. <laughs> Because you you should not there. feel yeah. <laughs> you should not feel like you lost twenty five percent. Still, are just as rich as you were. I I have to actually actually I'm going to contradict you here, Rakan, and okay. tell you ignoring the feeling part of it, which you might yeah. say, well, but I feel that I lost twenty five percent. No, the the actual real problem. This doesn't apply to this example, but it applies generally. If we're arguing the following, and this is something that I argue a lot in, in some of my classes when we're talking about interest. If you have 80% of the population putting their money in a bank and getting 2% interest, and then the 20% remaining people are not doing that, you will lose money because of the inflation. When you have more money, people are, money's just multiplying, money's getting a lot more, the supply is getting higher uh, than the people who are not raising their money do have a problem. And yeah. that is where we come to the point. That is why the question you put was really good. It wasn't, should I invest in crypto or not? But should I invest in crypto or in stocks or in something else? You should invest. Your money shouldn't just stay as it is because then it will lose value. Then you will have lost 25%, for example, if you haven't done anything with it. But if you're doing something with it, then, then it's generally a good Thing. Certainly, if the overall market is going up and you're completely sidelined, then yes. that's yep. cause for concern. But uh, my point was, if a specific position like Dogecoin, which I assume you <laughs> know, less than half percent of the population actually own, no cause for concern. So long yeah. as, as you mentioned, uh, but there, I think it's a good point, which is that you should be very cautious about keeping all your money not invested, right, in cash. This is assuming, of course, that you have enough cash reserves in place, and typically they advise three to six months of cash reserves, which I think is very reasonable. By the way, this is not financial advice, but generally speaking, you should have some cash reserves to cover your near to midterm upcoming expenses. However, once that's covered, I think you run the risk of falling behind inflation if you yeah. just keep the surplus in cash, uh, to Beto's point. Yeah, so that, that's one point. The other thing maybe that is a bit similar, what I always tell a lot of people if your stock or your investment actually goes down, you still haven't lost money till you actually sell it. That is something that a lot of people miss. So let's say I am holding, I don't know, Tesla, and it just went down 5%. Uh, don't go around calling all your friends and telling them, I just lost 5% of my wealth. That has not happened. As long as you're still holding the stock, then you haven't had any losses. You will only lose the moment you sell. If you keep holding and it goes up again, then, then nothing happened. Yeah, a trick that I actually like to use to combat that feeling of loss is that I calculate my wealth based on how many units of the asset I have. So mm -hmm. for example, if I have 500 shares of Tesla, 
well, that's my wealth, right? 500 shares of Tesla. This is because I have a good idea of what the intrinsic value of those shares are. So I'm able to do that. I'm able to say, okay, I have 500 shares of Tesla. I don't really need to know what it's trading for on the secondary market. I just need to know that this is the number of shares that I have. Similarly with Bitcoin, similarly with other assets, I like to value my holdings based on my understanding of the intrinsic value of those holdings and how much of those holdings I have. But that's, that's exactly a good point that brings us back to the uh, crypto part. So yes, I agree I'm holding 500 stocks of Tesla. That means I am an owner in this company for 500 stocks. And depending on what my intrinsic value evaluation of the company is, I actually own, I don't know, a wall in one factory or something like that. My, my problem is that uh, I don't know if you can apply that one-to-one with cryptos. So what am I actually owning? I'm not really owning anything here. And, and that is actually a, a good argument for that point. Well, I would say that I would say that you can. It's probably less obvious than it is for stocks. For example, I would say probably the easiest is Bitcoin. I think that when you look at the amount of wealth on Earth that needs storing and you look at the superior nature of Bitcoin compared to the other forms of storing wealth that are available to people. If you build your premise off of this, I think you can come to a reasonable valuation of the usefulness of a token of Bitcoin, considering that there are a maximum 21 million Bitcoin tokens that can ever come into existence. And, and applying similar logic to other cryptocurrencies. So in summary, I think that you really have to look at the usefulness of the coin. And at this point, since we're so early in the industry's uh, maturity, the potential usefulness uh, of the coin to arrive at an idea of what the intrinsic value of this uh, particular cryptocurrency may be. If you think about the intrinsic value as something related to the you know material nature of something, then yeah, it's tough to come to an intrinsic value calculation. But if you think of intrinsic value as sort of the usefulness or utility of something, then I think it's possible even yeah. for cryptocurrencies. So I, I would I, I agree on that, especially that last sentence. So that really makes the distinction because I usually would say, well, when I'm owning a company like Tesla or any stock. I am owning a productive asset, and that is the intrinsic value that I am seeing. And when you're talking about uh, cryptos in that sense, you're talking more about a store of value. But then I would argue, well, how would I see it if you were not talking about 500 uh, coins or tokens, but 500 bars of gold? And then I would say, yeah, sure, now I see the intrinsic value. And you would say, well, gold isn't that productive anyway. How come you see it with gold and not with tokens? Uh, so, so I see your right. point there. It really depends on how you're defining intrinsic value and you're defining it as a benefit that people might uh, want whether as a store of value or as a productive asset and and yeah in that sense i think i would agree perfect that was that was fun i enjoyed that but <laughs> I, I think probably a lot of listeners got a lot of benefit from that anything else you would like to add no so uh i think so the target uh of these podcasts or of this podcast is that we, we usually have this discussion, me and Rakan, quite often, and we thought it's nice for people to join us, to hear what we're saying, but also not make it too long. So we hope we weren't too long for the listeners here, but they get to listen to something. They get to hear what our opinions are about the most hot topics that we have right now, and maybe they learn something from it as well. 
Absolutely. I hope the listeners found it useful and I hope they tune in to our next discussion. Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.